Hey Riverbats, I'm Nora. I'm Precious. And I'm Sammy. Welcome to our podcast where we talk about all things honors. From professors to students and events we know you love. And all things nerdy. Now's the time. Let's get nerdy. Let's get curious. Hey, Riverbats. Welcome to the Honors Professor Edition. Uh, today, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Thomas from the English Department. Dr. T has taught classes from the post-apocalyptic literature to classic contemporary science fiction. She's also the author of the Science Fiction Handbook with M. Keith Booker. Um, and today, interviewing her will be Mia and Nora. How are y'all doing? Pretty good. How about the other one? Doing great. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. T. Glad to be here. Yeah. Yeah, good, good. Um, so usually to get this started, we'll ask you some icebreaker questions to get the conversation going before we dive into the meaty part of the pod. So I guess, Nora, do you want to take it away? Yeah. So Dr. T, I took um, apocalyptic literature with you, which was by far one of my favorite classes. I promise I'm not just sucking up. Um, so to start <laughs> this off, what is your favorite apocalyptic theme or genre? So when I when I think about apocalypse, or as you know, I arranged it in the class. I arranged it by agents. Um, so the apocalyptic agents, so nuclear, pandemic, um, catastrophic climate change or eco collapse, um, non nuclear technology, alien invasion, what have you. I would say of those, I I really enjoy it um, when we screw things up when we're actually trying to make things better. Mm -hmm. So biotech is one of my favorites, right? Um, We are messing around in our genetic code in this effort to make us better humans and things go terribly awry and we're the reason for our own demise. Although you could say that about a lot of a lot of the agents, obviously nuclear even pandemic because of the incursions that we have in the natural world and we bring those pathogens to us, of course, climate, et cetera. But I don't know. I find something particularly fun about biotechnology and I always love a good, you know, alien invasion. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Like the biotech ones are the most like definitely gonna happen. Like in our class you <laughs> talked about like the mosquitoes that they're releasing in Florida. We're already doing it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Monkey, human embryos, anyone? That seems like yeah, possibly I remember, a bad idea. Is that actually We happening? talked about that. Yeah. yeah, we talked about that in our first pod with uh, Hickox, remember? About how they're trying to swap genes with different oh, kinds yeah. of primates and stuff. Wow. Yeah, I think for organ donation, which makes it even yes. more likely that organ some kind donation. of... Organ donation, wink, mm-hmm. wink. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, I think also sometimes these things go into like zombie apocalypse kind of stories. And uh, so we want to know what is your zombie apocalypse survival plan if you have one or if there's another survival plan you have that you want to share. We're happy to hear it. Well, I'm going to I'm definitely going to disappoint you here because I don't have a a zombie (laughs) apocalypse survival plan because I am I, I should not admit this so early in the podcast, but. I'm sort of not down with zombies at all, and oh, the reason no. is is sort of ridiculous, which is that I just don't find them that plausible. Really? Now, I'm teaching science fiction and fantasy, <laughs> but for some reason, zombies just don't seem that plausible to me. Reanimated humans, no. Um, so, like, uh, even in the zombie literature, right, you start to have, like, these biomedical explanations for mm-hmm. it, which probably the mm-hmm. first one was... Um, 
I Am Legend, which was by mm-hmm. Richard Matheson. That's really more about uh, vampires than it is zombies. But the vampires act like zombies. Oh, and like- Romero took that as his inspiration for Night of the Living Dead, which is, of course, about zombies. And then later mm-hmm. it becomes more interesting as it moves from um, – the bacteria which causes vampirism, you know, and I am legend to uh, viruses yeah. as an explanation for zombies. Mm. And so to me, I almost find those, those epidemiological explanations more interesting than the zombies themselves. I mean, <laughs> give me a literate vampire any day rather than a grunting <laughs> zombie. Although I do acknowledge that the zombie as a metaphor is really interesting when you look mm-hmm. at it over time, mm-hmm. what it represents, our preoccupations and Americans, et cetera. But yeah, I don't have a zombie survival plan because I just don't, I don't believe that particular apocalypse mm-hmm. is going to come to pass. Mm. It's really funny you say that though, because that's actually the only apocalypse I've ever prepared for. Like <laughs> with friends, we have a plan in the case yeah, of a zombie I have apocalypse. A zombie apocalypse so. plan. Especially because like 28 days later, like the whole like, rabies right. thing turning into mm-hmm. yeah. virus yeah yeah but maybe i guess it's also because it kind of is the apocalypse is the easiest to plan for because i feel like there's been so many films about it that we know what to expect in the case of the zombie apocalypse right i mean you could almost like just have a cliched list of you know this is how mm-hmm. you survive it of course none of us survive it we all die and become zombies yeah. ourselves so it's Not completely me. useless <laughs> Very not Nora, Nora, no. <laughs> not Nora. <laughs> no, I will definitely survive, but okay. <laughs> um, what is the latest book that you've read? Or what are you reading? So the latest book I read was called uh, Riot Baby. And I have to look at the name to not uh, mutilate the pronunciation here. The author's name is Tochi Onyebuchi. Um, and so this was sold to me as African speculative fiction, and that's kind of been an interest of mine. I've always been interested in African post-colonial fiction, but there's really been an explosion in African speculative fiction. And there's even this sort of um, niche argument <laughs> among science fiction writers and critics about Afrofuturism versus African futurism. Afrofuturism, the idea is, is that it's mostly centered in the West, particularly the United States, whereas African futurism takes its locus at, in, in mm-hmm. Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and there's a ton of, of different pieces out now from a variety of different African countries. So this was sold to me as African speculative fiction, but when I started reading it, I realized that the author is Nigerian and American, <laughs> Nigerian American, mm-hmm. and that it takes place in America. And in fact, the riot in question, the riot baby, he's born during the Rodney King mm-hmm. riots in LA in 1992. And mm-hmm. so this um, story, it's a pretty short um, novel, I would say. It's only, I would think, almost a little bit longer than a novella, but it really is kind of examining more recent um, race relations through the eyes of this character who's born during those riots. He's sort of forged um, in that violence. But his sister has these, I don't know, almost unimaginable powers. Like she has telekinetic powers and she's psychic and um, she can move all across the world. She can teleport anywhere. But the tragedy is that she can't really remove her brother from his situation and he's incarcerated um, for for at least eight years but the book points I think toward the end 
toward a sort of reckoning in terms of um, race relations. So it's not what I mm -hmm. signed up for exactly. I was looking mm -hmm. for African futurism, but it's an interesting book. So. Um, I thought it was funny that you had just mentioned that the writer is from Nigeria, because this reminds me of a conversation we had about writers from the African continent, and we had a hard time finding writers that weren't from Nigeria. Yeah. <laughs> Why is well, that? <laughs> they're so dominant. I mean, that's where, okay. um, that's where it all started in terms of uh, publishing for the Anglophone world. I mean, you start mm. with Chinua Achebe mm -hmm. as the first major writer, and then there are many writers that, that come after that. But, um, you know, even today when I've been reading, when I can grab time to read it, I've read uh, a really great book from Zambia. Um, I really enjoy Lauren Bukes, who's a South African writer. Um, there's stuff coming out of Kenya, Ghana. It's out there. It's just that Nigeria, yeah, it's it's totally dominant. Also, the Nigerian American writers have a lot of influence. Like probably one of the most popular ones right now is Nnedi Okorafor, and she's the one who wrote the post-apocalyptic lore, Who Fears Death, which is being adapted to to film, mm -hmm. and she's the one who came up with the term. African futurism because she felt like there was just too much emphasis on the West and um, mm -hmm. Afrofuturism. So, okay, cool. We actually spoke about a Nigerian writer in our last pod with Professor Spaventa um, Amezi oh, cool. that she teaches in her class as well. Yeah, gotcha. So. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So you know how in high school yearbooks there's always the like this student was most likely to blank. What do you think that yours would have said? Well, so I was a drama nerd. Um, so <laughs> I was I was president of thespians. I was president of drama club. And I was also the brooding mm -hmm. type, you know, quite a goth girl. Um, so I guess if you put those two things together, most likely to go to Hollywood and become the character actress who plays the grumpy next door neighbor, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so that might, might be a little too detailed, but something along those lines. It's really lines. specific. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, so I guess that kind of touches on another question, which is what are your non-literary hobbies? Um, past I love how you put non-literary hobby in there. Um, because like the secret, and it's not really a secret about English teachers and English professors is that we rarely get to read the things that we want to read, right, mm -hmm. for leisure time because mm -hmm. we're so busy prepping for class or mm -hmm. we're reading and grading papers. Um, so I've done a very unscientific survey of English professors and teachers, and I have found <laughs> that not many of them have well-developed hobbies because I felt bad about the fact that I don't really have um, well-developed hobbies. They're all sort of haphazard, and so it made me mm -hmm. feel better to realize that they're sort of in the same boat I am. What they want to do when they're not working, of course, is they want to read, right, for, for pleasure. But outside of that, um, I have some haphazard. I'm an indifferent gardener, which means if Ooh. it grows, it grows. Um, and that's great. But say if there's a February storm that kills all your butterfly <laughs> garden stuff, you might not, not put Texas. a whole lot of effort <laughs> into bringing it back. Although I'm happy to say that all my um, red plants came back. So they, they maybe they didn't bring the, the butterflies, but they brought the hummingbirds back. So I've, I've been able to see them. And I would say that's still gardening as a hobby. I think you're being too hard on yourself of like, 
if you're not doing it like 100% of the time and things are perfect, then it doesn't count as a hobby because well, I definitely hobbies like come and go. I agree. That's a very healthy perspective. But my mother <laughs> owned an herb business, a live herb business. Oh, and cool. I was one of her only employees, right? Mm. So I learned a lot about what mm. you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. So yeah, I mean, that perfectionist streak um, concerning horticulture definitely comes okay. from her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I would say, like, the other things I um, do, like, I'm also a, a not very dedicated yogi, but I would be if I had more time uh, to do it. I try to have a regular practice to stay grounded. Do you like Hatha yoga? Yeah, I mean, I like the basics. Um, hatha, to me, is... Uh, my, once upon a time, I really liked this uh, type of yoga called Anusara. And as with every other style of yoga, its founder got into trouble. Um, mm. And his was over, I think it was over shipping marijuana all across the country, which is not the same. The lesser of, of these, most evils. Yeah, right. yeah. Gurus, but so Anyasara yoga is no more. But yeah, Hatha, Vinyasa, flow, you know, um, I like, and I like yin yoga um, mm. too, Hatha yin, yeah. where you kind of take the time and stretch things out. Um, so and then I guess the last thing is that during the pandemic, like many, many millions of people, um, my daughter and I watched the uh, Great British Baking Show, sort of like a balm for the soul, right? With oh, flour yeah. and mm -hmm. butter and sugar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we just started making increasingly elaborate um, concoctions, you know, bread, pastries, oh, yeah. etc. I learned a lot more about how to make crusts which i've never yeah. really paid that much attention to <laughs> and apparently most americans don't anyway right we buy our crusts because mm -hmm, i mean yeah. puff pastry wow it mm -hmm. is hard it is um, hard mm -hmm. and then they have you know they talk about the rough puff or the full puff or what have you so i learned all this funny <laughs> british terminology and also if something is stodgy it's very bad or if something <laughs> is claggy it's awful you know so so that was a recent hobby. Um, Would you like guys like grade it like the Great British Baking Show, like turn it over and examine the <laughs> Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I would be Paul Hollywood and say, you yeah, know, to me, this bread is looking a little stodgy. And so here's what we should do the, the next time. But yeah, I mean, those are those are the That's basic great. hobbies I, I have. Those are awesome. Mm -hmm. And I agree with Nora. I feel like you're being a little too hard on yourself with the hobbies thing. Possibly, no. possibly. I also am writing a children's novel. I've almost finished it. Um, oh, cool! So, children's yeah. novel. Uh oh, is it going to be scary? No, it is definitely. <laughs> it's it's with it. My first love is fantasy. Um, mm -hmm. Even though I teach mostly science fiction, and so it's kind of revisiting that. It's about a um, a narcoleptic girl who has adventures in the dream world and that kind of comes ooh, out of ooh. my own issues with sleep I'm not narcoleptic but I have sleep hallucinations the way that oh, wow. narcoleptics do and and I did I didn't even have my first one until I was like 30 right so mm -hmm. um so it's what just is sort the of sleep hallucination <laughs> yeah like, I didn't know paralysis? is that what makes it different from a dream I guess is yeah. the, the um, better question so there are these states let me see if I can remember the words hypnagogic I think is when you're going to sleep and hypnomic maybe is when you're waking up but there it's when you're kind of asleep and awake at the same time your brain is basically still manufacturing dreams so the first time it happened okay. I was kind of dozing in my bed and I had been reading and all of a sudden I, I thought I was awake um 
this horse, a black horse, shot out of uh, the back of the wall, right, oh, where, oh, my, wow. where my bed was facing. And I actually jumped off the bed to avoid being trampled by this black horse <laughs> oh, wow. because I believed, you know, you can't stop yourself, really. I believed that it was a real horse. Um, and then later I had to laugh because I was like, I'm such a cliche. It was a nightmare, right? That came out. <laughs> <of my laughs> That's amazing. It's absurd. Um, but so this, ha- this started to happen so frequently that I began to do some research, and that's when mm-hmm. I realized that narcoleptics deal with this sort of thing all the time. And I was thinking, like, what must wow. it be like as a as a developing mind, a child, to kind mm-hmm. of deal with this reality slippage on an everyday mm-hmm. basis? So it's more than sleep paralysis. Like you actually jumped off the bed. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, now wow. some people, some people are paralyzed. I didn't. I don't really experience that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, some. Uh, narcoleptics and people who just routinely experience um, paralysis yeah and it does take a while for your mind to realize oh that's that's a hallucination Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's crazy that's also I'm wondering now I had a really weird experience in my last apartment that I was just convinced was haunted but now I'm wondering (laughs) if I just had a sleep hallucination because I woke up one I woke up one night and I mean one morning and I looked over and there was a man with curly hair laying next to me and like gesturing and speaking, but I couldn't hear what he was saying, but I could hear him. And then as soon as I like tried to throw a pillow at him and then he disappeared. Yes, that. So I've had similar things happen. And yes, that is very likely a hypnagogic state where you are, unless you want to believe it's a ghost and then that's cool too. No, I don't. Right? I prefer not. I <laughs> yeah. prefer not. But yeah, that's likely a sleep hallucination. I think that's where like, if you can get good at getting into those states, you can do a lot of lucid dreaming. Oh, yes, dreaming. I'm too, when it hits, I mean, and it is fairly frequent I'm too terrified there's something about I I can't get past the terror you know I need Mm -hmm. about 15 seconds or so to tell myself Mm -hmm. so yeah I couldn't imagine living with this kind of on a daily basis Mm -mm. yeah Mm -mm. well earlier you were talking about your daughter (laughs) um I don't know you as well, but I I hear there's a story behind your daughter's name. Do you want to you want to tell us about that? Yes, my daughter's name is Ripley, and um, most of your listeners will probably know why that is uh, because she's (laughs) named after Ellen Ripley of Alien franchise fame. Um, I had the year before I got pregnant, I had um, published the science fiction handbook in it. So I guess I was still like really immersed in that world. And I was insistent that she needed to be named Ripley, which my husband was okay with, but he wanted the name Athena. And so we were like, oh, okay, let's, which one should be the first name and which one should be the middle name? And his idea was Athena as the first name. And then that way her initials would be Art. Um, so her last name is his tuck is Tucker. I didn't um, take his name. And so, but I wanted Ripley to be the first name. So now, poor thing, her initials are actually rats. Yeah. <laughs> so, I like that even better. <laughs> so I tried to read the rats of Nim early on, you know, uh, to give her a sense of, you know, rats as somewhat noble creatures, even though they're yes. overrunning our neighborhood. So, yeah, yeah that's the story. They can, they can be friends, though. Yeah. yeah. So, but that's also, there are other um, members of your family, maybe furry members of your family that are also (laughs) named after alien uh, characters? Yes. Um, My dog (laughs) is named 
Bishop. Um, so he's named mm-hmm. after the android in the second film. And um, my cat, Freya, she's a Maine Coon. And my husband wanted to name her Jonesy um, as the, after the name of the cat in the ship. And I, I broke with tradition and named her Freya. Um, mm. But the family also calls her Jonesy. So she, it's sort of like she has. And my daughter named her Freya Tulip Jonesy. So there you go. That's sweet. That is cute. So earlier I was kind of bringing things back to high school yearbook. Um, Now we're going to go to your early 20s. Um, What was your favorite piece of clothing that you wore in your early 20s? Well, one thing that I, um, I wore it all the time. It was because they were so popular in those days. It was a leather biker jacket, you know, with the belt and all the studs and what have you. Um, and I guess what was so significant about it to me was that it was different from the other biker jackets because uh, I'd had a boyfriend at the time who was an artist and painted a, a tarot card on the back mm. of the oh, jacket. Oh, cool. cool. And the tarot card was uh, the world, except it was in French, so it was even more pretentious. So it said Le Monde <laughs> up at the top. Uh, and so it got a lot of attention. And so I uh, recently modeled it, you know, for my daughter and my husband. And they were both like, well, why did you stop it? wearing that? You know, that's amazing. <laughs> I was like, sure, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll start teaching in that again. But I still have it. It's, it's definitely one of my favorites. You yeah. should definitely send us a picture and then we can include that. Okay. okay. Sure. Yeah. Yes, please. Um, all right. So, or, you know, you should wear that when you're teaching one day. When we That's go back to campus, yeah, go back to maybe campus. celebrate going back to yeah. campus with your leather jacket. Then you'll be the hippest teacher at ACC. Or uh, the most pathetic. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a timeline. <laughs> it really depends on how you look at it. Um, so if you weren't teaching at ACC, what do you think you'd be doing? So... I assume you mean job there because my mind after nearly a year and a half of pandemic teaching and work mm-hmm. just goes to being by the beach and possibly independently wealthy. Um, <laughs> but I'm guessing you're asking me about a profession, what profession I would do instead. Yeah. And you can, um, you know, you can say if we were going to be, you know, perpetually in a state of pandemic, like we are now, if it would be different job in that than it would be if we were in the free world, uh, in the before times, I don't in the know. Yeah. Times, yeah. Right. Well, I've always had an interest in wildlife, but maybe particularly frogs. I find frogs pretty fascinating. So I might go back into biology. I was interested in biology, um, going through school, but, uh, I had a hard time with the dissection part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, weak stomach and it's funny to see that you can sort of pass that on to your child because my daughter is also very squeamish um (laughs) and so I realized probably when she was about two I realized like oh I've passed this is a genetic thing they probably have this in the 23andMe ancestry report you know you (laughs) have a predisposition for squeamishness Mm -hmm. anyway so that's why I'm teaching English instead of um Studying for wildlife biology. Oh, you should have. That's what I'm going to school for. Not frogs specifically, but frogs are pretty cool. They are. They are cool. They're very important and they're disappearing. So, yeah, they're the bellwether. Um, Mm -hmm. And they have been Mm -hmm. for a while. So, yeah. Well, it's funny that you say you're squeamish because I, my experience in your class, and which also was my favorite class at ACC, was that we read some pretty. (laughs) 
some oh, pretty yes. gnarly stuff at points. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I mean, we talked about this earlier about how part of your class is about is like focused on pandemic apocalypse. So let's talk about the unfolding of the pandemic. Do you think your post-apocalyptic knowledge helped prepare you for this pandemic? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. oh. So. Post-apocalyptic, I mean, so pandemics in apocalyptic literature, they usually follow a couple of different tracks, right? So there's my dog. Um, (laughs) So one track is that the pandemic is a useful device to eliminate most people from the planet so that you have a hearty band of survivors Mm -hmm. um, who forge a new way of life together that, you know, is better than the old way of life, et cetera. And then the other one is that it it focuses on transformation. So that's transformation in a negative sense, like with zombies, or sometimes Mm -hmm. it's transformation in a kind of an evolutionary way. I mean, the virus is is an agent of evolution. We've been co-evolving with the things, you know, since we've first stepped out of the ocean and before. Um, Mm -hmm. So sometimes you'll have texts that will really emphasize the transformative aspects in a positive way. But neither mm-hmm. of these <laughs> scenarios really prepared me for anything. What prepared me was the fact that my dissertation was on viruses in um, popular culture. And so I did some uh, examination of, can you, can you hear my dog barking like a crazy Yeah, but person? that's fine. We okay. have, we have our, all of our animals make appearances yeah. in some of these pods. So oh, okay. okay. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> but yeah. um, I, so I did my, my dissertation on virus as cultural metaphor, et cetera. And so I did some research on actual pandemics, outbreaks, et cetera. And that's <laughs> more what prepared me. In fact, you know, I started ordering masks and like, late January mm-hmm. or early February mm-hmm. because I, I knew what was coming just based on the, the mm-hmm. research I did. So that, that probably prepared me more than anything else. Yeah. What about mm-hmm. kind of like, I feel like in a lot of the literature things, it's the same kind of stuff that we experience with like the government not responding properly or some people being like, oh yeah, this is happening. We should do stuff. And then the other half of the population being like, it's fine. Did any of that kind of pop up? That well, yeah. Like, oh, I mean, I just course. chalked that up to human nature a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I guess I, we knew who our president was before the pandemic. Right. <laughs> right. <exactly. laughs> um, I mean, I thought that Americans would handle it badly just because we don't have any real experience with a pandemic that's less than 100 years old. Right. Um, The diseases that they've called other pandemics, they haven't really touched us as much. And this is the Mm -hmm. first one since, you know, the flu of uh, 1917 and 18. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I thought we would not do well. What really surprised me, though, we were talking about the CDC earlier, that (laughs) the CDC as a government agency was a crack shot agency which designed Mm -hmm. pandemic protocols Mm -hmm. for all of these different countries across the world, had these amazing teams of epidemiologists, virologists, virus hunters, et cetera. So to have them fail right out of the Mm -hmm. gate, you know, with the contaminated tests, that actually shocked me. I mean, I didn't, yeah. I didn't have a lot of faith in the American public, but I did have this naive <laughs> faith in the CDC. So when that happened, yeah. um, and then they'd never seemed to regain their footing, even mm. up until this point. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That was a little shocking, I guess, for me. Yeah. 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 Well, I feel like a lot of people just felt they could trust the CDC. And then it turns out maybe we just have to come up with our own ideas. Maybe more of us should be reading your work and then we'll know better how to handle the <laughs> pandemic. <Yeah. laughs> well, Did they, you I say mean, it really... was really downloaded? 
it was really downloaded at the start of the pandemic, right? Yeah, that was really funny. Um, so yeah. nobody wants to read, you know, a dissertation from 2002. I mean, my God, why? Um, but <laughs> when the pandemic started, it was so since the pandemic started, it's been downloaded over 600 times or something. Um, and I keep thinking, like, yeah. what? do you think you're going to learn from this? <laughs> There's all of the information basically is outdated, et cetera. Also, I had stuff on like, I had a chapter on bioweapons and uh, mm. one on computer viruses and all this stuff. So it's just, it's sort of a larger view of the virus as a cultural metaphor. It's not, and you know, like even a chapter on the X-Files, right? So yeah. I don't know what people are getting out of it, but it is hilarious. I mean, clearly I'm a prophet is what's going on. Yeah, right? yeah that's not, exactly what it is. I not been given my due. Clearly. Evidently. Yeah. 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 But speaking of like poorly timed reading of pandemic books, I did start reading The Stand at the start of this pandemic and I had to stop because I was like, this is just hitting too close to what we're experiencing right now. I can't do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It seems like every time I've taught Mm -hmm. the class, we've had Mm -hmm. a new agent that's kind of been at the forefront. So in 2017, the fall of 2017, when I was first teaching the class, um, Kim jong uh, Un and Trump were sort of trading insults about who had the bigger nuclear weapon. And so briefly there, it looked like we might come to blows with them. And that's our mm-hmm. first unit, actually, in the class. And um, mm-hmm. North Korea had exploded some hydrogen bombs, which are pretty powerful. I mean, more powerful mm-hmm. in terms of their effects than the atomic bombs. So, so that was the first class. Then, of course, the class that Nora was in, that was our full-on uh, pandemic class, mm-hmm. right? And in between then, mm-hmm. we've had some other agents pop mm-hmm. up, of course, you know, um, mm-hmm. climate change being a big one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, the short story from your class that I remember, like, the most vividly is actually the one about, I think it's like a nuclear apocalypse, where the house that keeps going, even though everyone yeah. around it is gone. Oh, That's yeah. the Bradbury yeah. story. Yes. yes. I love the story. I recommend it to people still all the time. So Yeah, you're... that's a great story. Your course material is still getting passed around. Oh, good. I love to hear that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, My mom, actually, she's camping right now. And I just gave her Orgs and Creek and also um, Parable of the Parable of the Sower. Sower. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that one, that (laughs) Parable of the Sower, that's Octavia Butler. That one is too scarily relevant (laughs) Mm -hmm. at the moment. She was incredibly um, prescient. But what she was doing is just extrapolating current trends. Um, from mm-hmm. when she was writing. But yeah, that Bradbury story is mm-hmm. called uh, There Will Come Soft Rains by, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the greats in the golden mm-hmm. era of science fiction. Um, mm-hmm. So kind of going back to this, did you have any predictions for the pandemic that did come true or any that didn't? <laughs> Just that we would handle it badly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and that there would be variants, right? So I mm-hmm. I knew about mutate. That was something that I was really focused on was these uh, chimeric viruses, which were oh, amalgamations of different kinds of viruses. And so I knew that there would be variants, but, um, and I also knew that sometimes the first variants are actually more virulent, meaning more severe in their effects, but that eventually they become endemic, right? And so uh, they become less virulent and they, yeah. you know, on the level of sort of a, a minor cold first eventually. But that it takes quite a while for us to get there. So it didn't really surprise me um, that we would have variants. But what I think was so surprising really about the virus is how weird it is, how they Mm -hmm. weren't sure at first if it was a, 
really a respiratory disease or a vascular mm-hmm. disease. And, you know, still they don't really, I mean, it's going to take years um, to mm-hmm. figure this thing right. out. So no, I didn't really have any good predict, except, you know, that Americans would mm-hmm. somehow screw it up. So. <laughs> the hoarding toilet any... paper. Was that a prediction? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, because that's our go-to, right? I mean, people in France, they have bidets, and so they probably think oh, we're completely true. insane. Um, mm-hmm. Like, what is what is it with the rush on toilet paper? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it shows, like, <laughs> the extent to which we don't, we believe that the supply chain is very fragile. And I mm-hmm. think that that extends to our feeling about, you know, government institutions, that it's, it's, they're very fragile. This is, um, something that I've been reading recently. It's a book called Remainders of the American Century, and it's about um, post-apocalyptic novels in the age of U.S. decline. And mm-hmm. so one thing that it's, it's saying that kind of the post-apocalyptic form has become so dominant because we're out of what was called the American Century, in which we were really dominant on the world stage. And now people are kind of grappling with the fragility of our institutions, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the 21st century. And I'm I think there's really something to that idea and that goes straight back to toilet paper because that yeah. is an essential yeah. fundamental <laughs> yeah. thing. So. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, are there any predictions you have about the future of the pandemic that we're still in? Just that, you know, pandemics tend to have a way of really radically restructuring society, particularly if there's a massive loss of life. This isn't the Black Plague, so we're not going to mm-hmm. see that level of um, restructuring, but you can always already see it in in mm-hmm. labor, in work, and that that's not surprising mm-hmm. because we're Americans, so we, we live to work, right? Um, so mm-hmm. that's fundamentally who we are, these uh, busy, productive worker bees. Um, and so to me, I think that that is going to change even more our understanding mm-hmm. of what, I mean, there's, there's this huge reevaluation of why we work. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And this idea that, oh, maybe other people, when they work to live, that there's something to that, that mm-hmm. possibly we shouldn't put our entire worth in our yeah. uh, jobs, mm-hmm. our careers, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think that that's, we're going to continue to have a reckoning um, where that's concerned, but um, no other like real predictions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny that you brought up the plague because a friend brought this, I mean, to my attention today, that the plague lasted for over 100 years. Yeah. Like people's entire lifetimes yes. were inside of that. And that was just a really scary thought that this could be the rest of our lifetimes going through this if we don't take care of it. Right. I think I've indulged in some naive optimism and thinking that, and then next year, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the next, mm-hmm. you know, and instead of now listening to doctors saying that this thing is become going to become endemic and we're mm-hmm. just going to have to deal with it i'm like but i don't mm-hmm. like that message mm-hmm. so <laughs> i want to think about these things um mm-hmm. at the moment yeah well going into the pandemic i kind of just told myself that this was going to last a year so that if it lasted longer than a year i would already be used to it and then if it was less than a year then i would be happy that it was less than a year so that is and a- i feel like it's it's helped. That I don't is know. An excellent apocalyptic helped. coping strategy, Sammy. You learned so much <laughs> yes. from my class. Yes. Yes, I, I really did. It's all your class. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean that really uh, that 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 mindset is really really helpful in terms of just you know preserving your mental health if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I just just wanted to stop trying to fight 
the scenario that we are living in now right. and try to, yeah, just cope with it as best as possible. And I did actually reference a lot of, when, you, when I was thinking about what we were going to do, I did think about the books in your class and <laughs> your and your lectures. So it did really help me a little bit. Well, I'm happy to hear that. I always tell students though on the first day of class, this is not a prepper class. I mean, your teacher would be the first one who would be killed, right? In whatever scenario it is. So, but it was funny because at the end of the semester, last semester, <laughs> One of my students said, you said that this wasn't a prepper class, but secretly it really is <laughs> because the literature, <laughs> you know, is showing you all of these strategies. She said, I, you know, I intend to make acorn bread, which was one of the recipes. Not Brittany. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She was so hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she attempted to make acorn bread from um, mm. Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. I think it was definitely a proper class. Even like you're saying, Sammy, with the whole mindsets of like, mm -hmm. this is kind of a helpful mindset or like, you know, if you look at I Am Legend, his kind of mindset was not very helpful. And I feel like he was a little no, crazy. It took him a long mm -hmm. time to come to a place of acceptance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So speaking about the books that we read in class, how do you pick the books that are in your post-apocalyptic literature class? So in that one, because again, I arrange it by the mm -hmm. agents, I think, mm -hmm. this, so the class is a mix of um, short fiction and novels or four novels. And if I'm being honest, some of that short fiction is uh, their secret novellas. Um, and then um, a couple of films. And so I wanted the novels to be um, more on the classical side of things so that students would sort of have that foundation for it. Although, um, you know, I consider Parable of the Sower to be a modern classic. Um, mm -hmm. Purists might say, mm -hmm. well, that doesn't qualify as classic, what have you. But um, mm -hmm. and then I but then the short fiction, a lot of that is more contemporary because I kind of want to show the influences of some of these mm -hmm. more classic texts upon contemporary fiction. And so we do some pretty recent um, stuff there. But yeah, and it, I don't necessarily even picked I mean, for I do I Am Legend because to me that is the representative text um, from the 1950s of uh, pandemic. But, you know, for the nuclear unit, I chose Philip K. Dick's Dr. Blood Money, and that's probably not even one of his most well-known works, but it has such a weird take on mm -hmm. nuclear destruction, particularly in the forms of mutations, mm -hmm. that I just thought that that was a... I don't, well, it's just a really strange book and mm -hmm. to me mm -hmm. a lot more interesting than some of the more straightforward depictions of nuclear apocalypse. This actually reminds me of something that I have been meaning to ask you since I finished your class. Uh, I noticed a pattern where, as also in Dr. Blood Money, that a lot of apocalyptic stories start or have a lot of it taking place in Marin County. <laughs> Is there a reason for that? Uh, I, I have a friend from Marin County and I asked him and he didn't know. So, so I, like, I, just I think you're thinking you. about California because Octavia Butler mm -hmm. is from Pasadena, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. a lot of her stuff takes place in and around LA. Right, right, and, right, right. Mm -hmm. And so, she, so that's where she was from. And then of course, Philip K. Dick was from mm -hmm. that area as well um and so he was he would often write about marin or orange mm -hmm. county or you know more northern california 
Um, so I think it's just simply where some of the writers are living, right? And so okay. that's kind of their lived experience. Mm-hmm. But Marin County, I mean, if you go there today, it's utopian, right? Bougie. It's, it's, Isn't it just like a bougie spot? Well, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if you, if you get into the rural parts of it, and there are still rural parts of it, um, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's sort of like this Arcadian pastoral landscape owned by extremely rich people now um Mm -hmm. but at the time when he was writing in the 1960s it wouldn't have been it would have been a little bit a little bit backwards people are a little bit isolated Mm -hmm. there and then of course safe from the effects of some of the fallout anyway although as we know there are mutations all over that book so Mm -hmm. oh yeah (laughs) um are there any books that you've wanted to include but can't for some reason well, we're limited by the the focus, like it's American literature. Mm-hmm. So I always feel bad that I can't include more global texts because there's so many fantastic, you know, te- for example, Jose Saramago's Blindness, right? He's um, Portuguese. That's a terrifying book, um, you know, where everybody basically goes blind. And there are so many um, British books, too that are are just classics of the genre that I would want to include. I mean, I even cheat in our class because I do Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake, and technically she's Canadian, but it takes Mm -hmm. place in the United States. And Nalo Hopkinson actually is Jamaican-Canadian, and I include one of hers too, but but that's it. I mean, I would bring in more, um, you know, text Mm -hmm. from other regions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, it's interesting that you say classics because I feel like the sci-fi genre, like the apocalyptic genre, has, I mean, this reputation of just being trash literature. I don't know. And like, I feel like as someone who's taken a lot of um, literature classes, so much is focused on this literary canon that really most people today cannot really relate to. Um, so I'm curious, um, what do you think is like the value of sci-fi and apocalyptic literature? And what do you think about this idea that these you know, genres are trashy literature and have nothing to offer? <laughs> well, I've dealt with that for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. My whole uh, tenure in the Academy. But one thing about the Academy is that there is a, a respect or an at least acknowledgement that um, science fiction should be considered serious literature and mm-hmm. you know it's there have been um reputable science fiction journals for a very long time it's just that oh, wow. in the and I've, I've published in one of them um but the second best not the first best but um so <laughs> for for a long time you know it has been acknowledged in the academy of worthy of this kind of critical examination but the problem is is that you don't have enough critics spread out across the United States and universities. So what will happen is you'll have them kind of congregate at different institutions in the, the country. I mean, one of the reasons that I got my PhD at LSU is because there happened to be two science fiction critics there. Um, oh, and they cool. were two, you know, pretty well-known critics in their field, but that's sort of unusual. Um, mm-hmm. Most, uh, say, regional universities if somebody is teaching a science fiction course, it's generally because that's their minor interest and not their major mm-hmm. interest. But there are places like mm-hmm. uh, UC Riverside, which has a, a massive science fiction archive collection, et cetera. I've always thought it was unusual that UT, we have the Harry Ransom Center, and we have this amazing science fiction collection, but we don't really have any devoted, um, sci- well, that I know of, uh, science fiction mm-hmm. critics at UT at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so... But back to your question, like, well, why is it considered a trash honor or why do people? Because there is a prejudice on the part of the, <laughs> the reading public that we've all grown up with, which is that 
19th century social realism conventions are the de facto literary genre that is serious, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I would just argue and say that science fiction is the last true literature of ideas, and people will fight mm-hmm. me about that. Um, but I say that it's it's more relevant to our contemporary moment than almost any other literature. Um, because if you think about it, like contemporary literary fiction, you know, that's the, the dominant mode. But if I read a text today that it's a contemporary literary short fiction and none of the characters use cell phones, I'm sorry, that's fantasy, right? That's not yeah. the world mm-hmm. in, in which we live. And so I think it's it speaks more to our contemporary moment because we are living mm-hmm. in kind of a, it seems like a science fiction reality mm-hmm. because a lot of these ideas have been worked mm-hmm. out in the text. But to me, like the most important function of science fiction is something called cognitive estrangement, which okay. it puts you into this sort of disorienting perspective because it's so separate from your own world. So for example, if I say the sun rose, you automatically have an understanding of what that is, what that looks like, mm-hmm. where you're grounded, mm-hmm. et cetera. But if I say both suns rose, then that immediately puts you somewhere else. It's on a different planet, yeah. et cetera. And so what our brains tend to do then is we think about the differences between that removed society and our own. And then that gets mm-hmm. us to question, you know, some of the things that, and for science fiction writers, it's always about the institutions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of science fiction is heavily political. They're making some sort of social commentary, et cetera. And so I think that effect, mm-hmm. that defamiliarizing lens is a really important um, tool um, by mm-hmm. which to talk philosophically about so many of our contemporary issues. So I know that it's still, you know, considered trash, et cetera, um, and also because of the way that we talk about it, not just in books, but, you know, mm-hmm. in our other cultural productions. So video games or movies, television shows, et cetera. What's really funny to me, though, is that it's a dominant mode now. Science fiction is really mm-hmm. a dominant mm-hmm. mode. So the fact that people are suggesting that it's still on the margins, no, that ship has sailed. So. Right, right. Well, so to continue down this avenue of science fiction, um, you co-authored the science fiction handbook. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and how you think things have changed in science fiction since you wrote that? Yeah, they've yeah they've changed a lot. It's been um, tell us. <laughs> yeah, it's been ten years. Um, the reason that uh, my co-author and I, M. Keith Booker, uh, and I wrote it is that at the time, there was not an apparatus for undergraduate students for approaching analysis of science fiction. Um, meaning that there were plenty of specialized science fiction academic texts, but they were pretty heavy on the jargon. Like you'd have to have a pretty good background in critical theory to be able to parse them. And so what Mm -hmm. we wanted was something for, you know, for ACC honor students, something that introduced some of these critical terms, but um, that were accessible for undergraduates. Mm -hmm. So we provided, we just divided um, the book up into different subgenres. So utopia, dystopia, apocalyptic, et cetera, alien invasion, and talked about, gave an overview basically, of these um, texts, you know, throughout time. We did one on feminism, gender, um, to kind of show the history of it up until the present day. And then we also included individual analyses of, you know, famous science fiction texts. And so that was Mm -hmm. our goal. And so now 
that is so common. That approach is so common that our book is not unique at all, right? It's just, mm-hmm. <laughs> number one, it's it's over 10 years old, uh, so <laughs> it doesn't have the most recent stuff in it. But yeah, I mean, that approach is no longer considered new or even interesting. Mm-hmm. But in terms of how things have changed, mm-hmm. right, just even the, the feminism and gender chapter, I mean, there's mm-hmm. just been so much in mm-hmm. science fiction since then about... Um, gender, about orientation. Now, science fiction has always been interested in these things, Mm -hmm. and I think people don't realize the extent to which it is, because when I talk to people, sometimes they still kind of have this understanding that the genre is dominated by, you know, Mm -hmm. white men. Um, I think because they have this notion that, you know, we're still in the 1950s, the golden era, age of science fiction, they call it, etc. But Mm -hmm. even... Even during that time, you had women who were writing um, with pseudonyms, who were doing interesting things with gender, et cetera. But yes, I mean, today mm-hmm. we're looking at all kinds of different things on a spectrum mm-hmm. that yeah. is pretty different from even 10 years ago. And then the other thing would be the explosion in um, in global science fiction. It's not that it wasn't there before. It's just that we have it in translation now. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, Chinese science fiction would be an example of that. And I think really that's due to one famous writer, Shi Shin Liu, it's the three-body problem, and his translator, Ken Liu, who is mm-hmm. a really well-known science fiction writer, American Chinese-American science fiction writer in his uh, own right. And he translated Shi Shin Liu's works and then translated a bunch of other Chinese science fiction writers. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we have all of this Chinese science fiction on the stage is basically because well, not to put too fine a point on it, but basically because their government has allowed it, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, mm-hmm. they this sort of thing wouldn't be allowed to go out in the world unless it were sanctioned by the, mm-hmm. the government. So that the explosion there and then the explosion, as I said, in African um, speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there's so much out there. I Yeah, it's sort of embarrassing, right? Uh, <laughs> how... Um, paltry you know our our view Mm -hmm. is but I was telling you I was reading this book about the remainders of the American century it was this Mm post-apocalyptic thing and I was coming along and I and there we were we were in a few footnotes so I was like okay (laughs) we're still relevant sort of yeah so anyway well also 10 years doesn't seem that old but I guess now time is very different from yeah and just yeah how it used to be measured well yes um and because there's a fire hose of um, speculative fiction out there, right? I mean, you can't mm-hmm. you can't mm-hmm. keep up with it. I can't keep up with it. Um, students mm-hmm. will often say, you know, have you read this? Have you seen that, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And embarrassingly, a lot of the time I have to say, well, nope, um, but I've read this uh-huh. other thing. And they're, you know, blank faces, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. So there's this overall kind of fragmentation, I think, both in the publishing industry. And I mean, just in terms of like, our own cultural literacy, if if mm. none of us are all watching the same television show, right, then we don't have yeah. that basic cultural literacy. But so, like, if you all watched Rick and Morty, right, we could talk mm-hmm. about the science fiction tropes in that, that they're constantly making fun of, et cetera. But you have to have, what is it, Adult Swim, Cartoon Network or yeah. something to be able mm-hmm. to access that. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, So are there any apocalyptic writers or titles that you think everyone should be reading right now? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess, 
so N.K. Jemison's The Broken Earth Trilogy, that's, <laughs> talk about relevant to our contemporary moment, The Broken Earth uh, Trilogy. Yeah. So that's one that has won a lot of the awards. She's often talked about as Octavia Butler's heir, kind of her literary mm-hmm. heir. I don't really happen to agree with that because I think their themes are pretty different. But in The Broken Earth Trilogy, you have a far future Earth. It's kind of a, it's a fantasy um, in which there are these cataclysms that happen, you know, once every 75 years, 100 years, mm-hmm. um, and everything is destroyed again, and this continually happening. It, and yes. so you have, and they're destroyed because the earth is broken. It's unsettled. Mm-hmm. And so you have these tectonic plates shifting around and volcanoes and all the rest of it. And so there are these characters in the stories that can manipulate this uh, sort of earth energy below the surface. They're called origins, but they are, because people are so afraid of them, they're terribly discriminated against. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this kind of race parable in there and the way that they're used and kind of even enslaved in order to do work for for other people. So a lot of people really Mm -hmm. enjoy um, that trilogy. I would say, for me personally, one of my favorites in recent years is um, Jeff Vandermeer's Born from 2017. Um, you might know Jeff Vandermeer yep. for his uh, Southern Reach trilogy, Annihilation. Mm-hmm. The first book of that was made into a movie a few years ago. But I think Born mm-hmm. is his masterpiece. And so, Sammy, yeah. it looks like you have you've read Born. Yes, I did because I started that apocalyptic uh, the book group, yes. book club, <laughs> yeah, after your class, and we did read that, and it was fantastic. And I actually just recommended this to a friend. Um, and I'll have you know that it actually has a wait on like a wait list at the Austin Public Library. Oh, wow. Some people are wow. reading it. Okay, yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. very cool. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's one of those biotech um, post-apocalyptic works because the character is living in uh, what used to be a city that had this corporation that was involved in all kinds of biotech. And then, of course, it just leeches out into the surroundings and transforms. Things. There's a giant flying bear. And then the mm-hmm. character born is basically just like this charming blob that the main character meets, but that as it grows, you you find out that it's sort of a charming murdering blob, but for some reason, <laughs> yeah. you still really love the character. I don't quite know how to explain mm-hmm. it, but it's genius. Um, so yeah, Jeff Vanderbeer's born is definitely a favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite science fiction trope that you kind of? I would say no probably no because I like to be I like to be open-minded because I Mm. will sometimes um because I was thinking about the opposite like I recently picked up a space opera um and space opera is not meant to be pejorative right that just tends to be the term associated with it so soap opera in space but that that's not really it it's just about you know intergalactic adventures but some of the more recent ones I have found very, very tiresome because it just seems like elevated um, court antics in space, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, courtroom antics and nobility and what have you. And I mm-hmm. honestly could care less. Um, but that <laughs> that seems to be really um, popular at the moment. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm going to say I'm going to try to be as open minded as possible and say I don't have a favorite. Right. I don't necessarily yeah. seek them out. Mm-hmm. They all have something to offer. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so you have your animals and daughter named after uh, characters in Alien. Um, so what do you think about aliens? Do you think that there are other worlds out there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just statistically speaking, there there have mm-hmm. to be other worlds with, right. you know, mm-hmm. maybe not advanced civilizations, but it seems like just playing the yeah. odds that there would be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think if aliens I- came... Oh, sorry, Sam. No, I was going to say, I saw a really funny meme the other day, because, you know, now that all the billionaires are going to space, yeah. that um, yeah. all of the UFO sightings that we have are just billionaires from other galaxies that are coming oh. to see us. So they're just slumming, <laughs> yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Mm. Sorry, think- Nora, go ahead. No, 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 you're fine. Do you think if aliens did come to this Earth, we would be in, like, a Mars attack situation, or... Would they be friendly or are they already here and we're in a they live situation? <laughs> um, well, I have sort of a cynical view about that. It's more like, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, there's a book called Roadside Picnic. And it's a Soviet era book written by a couple of brothers, the Strugatsky brothers. And in that book, aliens have come to earth and they've left these alien artifacts behind which have then kind of polluted the earth and caused Mm -hmm. deaths and mutations and all kind of weird things to happen and changes the physics of the earth um but you have people who they they want to go to this place where these alien artifacts are because money can be made from them Mm -hmm. um and so you have sort of a tour guide who takes you through this landscape and if you're lucky you don't die but it comes out kind of in the end that those alien artifacts were there just because aliens were using earth as a sort of pit stop a roadside picnic so they don't really know or acknowledge (laughs) that there's a civilization on earth because Mm -hmm. it were too far beneath their notice for them to even acknowledge our presence so i guess that's how i would see it like if they came it would just be a roadside (laughs) picnic for them yeah I like this that. This reminds me of like Steven Universe with I don't know. My daughter loves that. that show. Yes. She she absolutely like, adores it. Yeah. The crystal gems, the gems. Uh, are protecting the humans because all of the other gems just want to colonize the planet and don't even care that there's No, they're wholly in uninterested in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I never heard I, of that, but I'll look it up. It's this, the same. that's a plausible take. Yeah, sure. it's the same so the Steven Universe folks are the, I think it's one of the women who was working on Adventure Time, right? Mm. And she moved from Adventure mm. Time to Steven Universe. So she's one of the original creators of, of Adventure Time, which I adore Adventure Time. So. Yeah, no, that Adventure Time is fun. Adventure Time is fun. Um, so speaking of, you know, the apocalypses that we might be currently experiencing, one of which is the pandemic, but another one is environmental apocalypse. Um I mean, just in the month of July, we've been oh. hit with so many things worldwide. worldwide. Um, and the environmental p- apocalypse is a really big theme in your class. So, you know, given the state of the world, um, how do you feel literature plays a part in how we pr- process these catastrophes? <laughs> well, normally, <laughs> I would say that there, you know, you experience that cognitive estrangement, but you only experience when that when the literature is different enough <laughs> from your own yeah. experience <laughs> to right. be able to look at the differences between the two. But now we're getting pretty close to the scenarios mm-hmm. painted in those works. And so then the cognitive estrangement disappears a bit. Um, but in terms of processing it, I mean, Bill McKibben, the environmentalist, said that 
you know, we should have operas in which catastrophic climate change is the subject. All, all mm-hmm. of our cultural productions should be dealing on some level with this because it is an existential crisis. Mm-hmm. And right. if it's in front of you and you're immersed in it, then maybe you're likely to do something, I don't know, to save your existence, right? Mm-hmm. right. Um, to put mm-hmm. all of your focus and attention on this. It's just that it can be sort of exhausting, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly when you're experiencing mm-hmm. it yourselves. Um, so I'm afraid I probably don't have a very good answer for that one because I'm still trying no, to figure it okay. out myself mm-hmm. as we get closer and closer to these scenarios laid out in the book. Right, right. And so yeah. how long has the environmental apocalypse um, been relevant, like in, in in apocalyptic literature? Is that a relatively new concept or is that no. been around for um, a while? No, okay. I think so. I think Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring in 1962, mm-hmm. which is sort of the clarion mm-hmm. call um, for environmentalism. And you have works in the Ballard, J.G. Ballard would be one, The Drowned World, he's English, um, about the you know, potential effects of um, climate change. And the one that we, we start out with an early one in the 1970s, that's an Ursula K. Le Guin um, story, and it's considered to be one of the first um, mm-hmm. climate change, American climate change works, et cetera. So, no, it's been around for a while. What's happening, mm-hmm. though, is that you're seeing an explosion of cli-fi climate fiction from mm-hmm. people who mm-hmm. are not necessarily science fiction writers, um, oh, gotcha. Yeah. And so you're, you're kind of seeing this. I There goes my dog again. Um, <laughs> I keep seeing this in like um, The Guardian and other kind of mainstream publications. Mm-hmm. Look at this explosion. Mm-hmm. And they don't include science fiction writers. They just include, mm-hmm. you know, these writers who were doing it as like, oh, here's my foray into speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's been around yeah. in yeah. science fiction for a long, just- long time following what's trending at the moment um well but i guess like to include the cli-fi that you're referring to and you know old school environmental apocalypse like sci-fi all these things do you think these like genres of literature can inspire innovative ways for humanity to cope and confront the with the climate crisis yeah i mean so our most significant utopian writer maybe people would fight me on this um but i would say is kim stanley robinson and he's been mm-hmm. writing utopias for a long, long time. And the, mm-hmm. the more recent ones, and by recent, I mean like late 90s and into the, the mm-hmm. 2000s, he's been confronting catastrophic climate change. And he says that this is our utopian moment, right? Because mm-hmm. you're either going to have mm-hmm. to invent and innovate and implement these strategies or you're facing mass extinction. Mm-hmm. And most people right. would agree <laughs> that <Yeah>. non-mass extinction <laughs> is better, you know, possibly yeah. even utopian, yeah. right. than mass extinction. Right. So, yeah, right. I mean, he's saying that uh, climate change is really forcing a reckoning um, of utopian right. thought. So, mm-hmm. Or we hope that's the direction it's going in. I mean, it he's extremely optimistic. Like, he has to be, right? He writes utopias. Mm-hmm. But, right. um, but right. yeah, I mean, I've always found his um, – and actually, I think – um, nor in that class, I made your class read a, an essay by him, and it was about the pandemic. It wasn't necessarily about climate fiction, but it was talking about how the structure of feeling has changed in society. Mm-hmm. And when the structure of feeling, as he puts it, it's a Walter Benjamin term, changes, then that gives you opportunities to confront things that you wouldn't normally have, even though you're doing it basically mm-hmm. in the midst of a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, speaking of utopia and perhaps also the opposite of utopia, <laughs> um, <laughs> I like I like that really optimistic point of view, but I also sometimes play with the idea. And I'm curious if you also play with this idea of like, when we think about apocalypses, we think of them as something that will happen in the future. And like, it's something that we've never experienced before. But what do you think about the idea that we are currently living in a post-apocalyptic world? Um, Good, great question. Yeah, I think um, (laughs) indigenous people would definitely agree with you, right? Um, Because Mm -hmm. they consider this, they consider themselves to be living in a post-apocalyptic world. I mean, when you think about and I think I have this right, but from 1492 to 1650, contagion is responsible for nine out of 10 indigenous people dying. And that's mm-hmm. from Chile to, mm-hmm. to Newfoundland, right? So they mm-hmm. have already right. experienced their own apocalypse. Right. And so you get some really interesting viewpoints um, out of that. Sherman Alexi, for example, has kind of adopted um I think the guy's name is Vince Visner, his term survivance, which is uh, it's existence and survivance kind of together. But the idea here mm-hmm. is it's sort of a muddy term. But what it really means is we're not just looking at survival. We're not just talking about um, victimization. We're talking about getting beyond mm-hmm. that. And so for mm-hmm. um, some of the indigenous writing, they're using the figure of the trickster um, to do that, to navigate, you know, this mm-hmm. post-apocalyptic world, et cetera. So, um, and th- there are actually some indigenous post-apocalyptic works that both play with that trope, right? That they've already undergone an apocalypse and then play mm-hmm. with sort of more common Western tropes. So you have, there's one mm-hmm. really cool indigenous story that I have that is a, a zombie apocalypse story, <laughs> right? That I love it. Uh, this particular tribe is, is dealing with. So, Um, So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. however, do I think I'm living in a post-apocalyptic society? No, because the social order hasn't um, fallen yet. My social order Mm -hmm. that I'm familiar with. However, Mm -hmm. I have definitely used the word dystopian to describe, Mm -hmm. you know, our current reality. What we're currently living in. Yeah, (laughs) right. I've Mm -hmm. been thinking about that throughout this entire podcast, just that, like, we have such a, I don't know, we, we have such a specific idea of what it means to have like a normal life and yes and so anything that you know is outside of that like you were talking about anything that is cognitive estrangement for us from the like standard american way of living feels unprecedented and feels apocalyptic or dystopian but yeah for a lot of people that's not even really their reality absolutely so. um i yeah i mean in the book that i'm reading it's the title of it is remainders of the American century. And those remainders are the things that are pre-apocalyptic that persist Mm. into the post-apocalyptic era. And those remainders tend to be the things that supposedly kept us grounded or that that was, Mm. you know, represented mainstream American identity. And so they become kind of this touchstone in these Mm post-apocalyptic texts. But yes, you're right. I mean, just the notion of like, when we're talking about apocalypse, we're also talking about what seems like a pretty specific idea, but Mm. it's not. I mean, apocalypse, Mm -hmm. the word, it means hidden things revealed. Um, Mm. And so a lot of people have talked about the notion of apocalypse as an opportunity, right? I mean, there were, you know, Mm -hmm. a thousand years of peace after the apocalypse, supposedly Mm -hmm. in Revelation. So, Mm -hmm. hey, things are looking up. I I also, okay, that that, I love that definition. I have never actually knew that that was the definition. Um, But 
I spent like a whole semester, I was writing a report on Atlantis. And I want to know if you think there's any, you know, any historical, valid, plausible possibility that Atlantis was real. I don't know, but I can tell you that the Le Guin story we read that has to do with climate mm-hmm. change is called The New Atlantis. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think... Uh, I think a lot of people like to play around with that idea um, that yeah. there have been these great civilizations that have then fallen and we are just rising mm-hmm. in their ashes, which makes us the post-apocalyptic um, society. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I myself, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know much other than the tales, you know, the historical tales that we mm-hmm. get of it. So I'm sorry that I can't speak more specifically to Atlantis <laughs> itself. But I've got something to look forward to. Yes, even the little bit. Some people like, and some people find a little esoteric. So, mm. I'm not scared. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the last question that I have for you in this section is: uh, you kind of already talked about this because you're so busy, and you know, just English teachers in general being very busy, but. Why don't you play video games? We're talking about like cognitive estrangement. And that's like the perfect environment for that. You are correct. Um, one thing is that I have an inner ear disorder. And so sometimes looking at shifting things on the screen like that, mm. it actually makes me, it gives mm. me motion sickness. Um, but I do oh, well. play boardgamearena.com mm. uh, with my family, which I know doesn't really count because they're based on board games. But technically, they're video games, right? Um, oh, I agree 100%. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I I mean, I would love to um, dive down deep into Fallout or Cyberpunk 20, I don't know mm-hmm. what it is now, 2077 or something 77. like that. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't really have the time to devote to that. Yeah. yeah. In another universe. Yes. In an alternate yes. universe. In my mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. independently wealthy living by the beach <laughs> alternate lifestyle, yes. Mm-hmm. You'd That's be a total gamer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A Dr. T Twitch streamer. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. Well, so I think now we're probably just going to get into the, like, the honors program generally. We have some questions for you about that. I um, guess I'll let Mia continue a little bit longer with her questions. Yeah. So, so what's something that you think that the honors program has made possible for its students? Well, it has made possible boutique curated classes at a cut rate price <laughs> because you do not have to pay extra to take honors classes to be, you know, in these classes that are like, you know, that have a seminar style in which you have mm-hmm. close interaction mm-hmm. with like-minded students, students who are interested in the same things you are with your instructor. Um, you get to there are different types of experiential learning that you get to do in some honors classes that are not really available Mm -hmm. in traditional classes. And um, I I think the community that develops in these classes, this intellectual community, there's no, I think, overestimating how significant that is for students who sometimes feel alienated in classrooms where it just seems to be all Mm -hmm. about getting the material down, regurgitating it, getting the grade and moving Mm on. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. From my personal experience. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) And if you could take any honors course taught by another professor, 
um, which one would you be interested and why? Well, that would be the astronomy life in the universe. Um, I am interested in aliens. So I I had money on that answer. So thank you. Okay, there you go. You won that. Um, I mean, I'm sort of transparent, right? Um, But um, uh, Endel, you know, Michael Endel, the person teaching that class, the instructor, I mean, he's also discovered an exoplanet, which I think is, you know, super cool. I would love to be in a class Mm -hmm. with somebody who's had that experience and, and could talk about it. But yeah. Yeah, that would be the class I'd take. An exoplanet? Yeah, just like a, an, an Earth-like planet, right, oh, in okay. another mm. um, solar system. That's cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, is there a dream course that you'd want to teach for honors if you're not already teaching that course? Global science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Is there not a global literature? So there's a world literature. Like, we have two world, sections yeah. of world literature. Mm-hmm. It would probably be, like, a contemporary world literature class um but i already teach two honors courses Mm -hmm. um and so if i took a third i would be the only person taking a third and then people might start to say Mm -hmm. you know i noticed that she's the chair of the honors program and that somehow (laughs) she gets to teach three classes so i don't want to invite that kind of scrutiny you know yeah (laughs) special privileges yeah yeah um Mm -hmm. do you have any goals or wishes for things that you want to see in the future of the honors program yeah, I would definitely like to see students able to take an entire course of study at the campus where, you know, they take most of their classes. Uh, right now, many of our classes are scattered across the district, so it's a little bit more difficult mm-hmm. for a student to do that unless they're housed at Highland. Highland is probably where mm-hmm. we offer the most courses. So I would like to do something like that and maybe even have something along the lines of an honors college, which is sort of like its own dedicated school our program it's a it's a pretty modest program in comparison to many community Mm -hmm. colleges we just don't have the resources uh, that a number of other programs do so if the administration is listening i would be happy to take any of your resources uh for the honors program but we will send this directly to them after we're done right yes good (laughs) so yeah and i'd like to see the program raise its profile a bit in the school as a whole because although i think the ambassadors have done an excellent job in helping us to raise our profile a lot of students still don't know we exist yeah, that's true. Well, I I do want to say, though, a lot of people don't realize actually how much you've done for the program. So I think this is a good time right now to spotlight all the things you've done for the honors program at ACC um, and, you know, just encouraging like the ambassadors to exist, which is why we're all here. <laughs> yes. um, mm-hmm. But uh, so there's the most recent thing that, there, that we've been talking about with the program is that there will be an honors scholar tier addition to the program with an honors scholarship. So do you want to maybe just give us a little bit of information about that so maybe students know what to look forward to? Sure. Yeah, this is an idea um, that I had, which I stole from other programs, about rewarding students for more investment in the program because you don't really get anything out of the honors program if you don't take classes. Um, Sometimes students think that they'll get something just from joining it, but no, the benefit comes from taking the classes. But I wanted to... Mm -hmm find a way to reward more investment and engagement and so that's when I was looking at some of these other schools that have these different tiers and so Mm -hmm. the tier is where you fulfill some requirements and then you get recognition for fulfilling those requirements and so in our case uh, it would be you know you take at least three honors courses um, you maintain Mm -hmm. a 3.5 GPA you engage in leadership activities and that can be 
you know, you have um, been an officer in a student Mm -hmm. organization or a club. Maybe you're an honors ambassador. Maybe you have completed um, our partnership with UT, the Youth and Community Studies Fellows Program. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also uh, a service component. Maybe you did a service project or you've taken service learning classes or you've um, volunteered with, you know, ACC's nonprofit uh, agencies. Um, and so if you complete the honor scholar tier, then you'll receive honor cords at graduation. And you'll also, we've just designed it, uh, you'll have a fancy seal on your transcript that says honor scholar. Yes. <laughs> and then you're eligible. Yes, very nice. You're eligible once you've um, declared your intention to become an honor scholar to fulfill the requirements. Mm-hmm. You're then eligible to apply for the honor scholarship, which we just got off the ground in April. Um, and that we're hoping to distribute in the spring. There's not a lot of money mm-hmm. in it. So if you want to awesome. do- donate money, feel free to contact me. <laughs> we will take your money. Um, but we've never, the honors program has never had a scholarship before, which seems absurd, right? Um, because mm-hmm. there needs to be, again, some sort of recognition for students that's actually tangible. Sure, they get so much out of the mm-hmm. classes, letters of recommendation, et cetera. But let's be in line with some of the other programs and offer them these more tangible rewards as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cool. Well, so when would students be able to apply for that? You think in the fall, next fall? For the scholarship? This yeah, they were, I'm yes. going to be putting together a scholarship committee this fall. And so then, yes, we would ask students to apply um, for the fall. We would award them in the spring. Very cool. Awesome. Okay, cool. So we'll also be sure to put that link on if anybody wants to donate to the program. Um, <laughs> we'll make that accessible yeah. to them. Excellent. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. This was awesome. I mean, all of us have been looking forward to this since we get to, ta- yeah. to talk to you at work all the time. Um, but now we're happy to share. I think it's really funny that <laughs> you're looking forward to talking about the apocalypse, right? Because most people probably <laughs> wouldn't say that, which is why I love teaching the class, because I always ask, like, why mm-hmm. are you here, <laughs> right? That you want to die. I was born to live through an apocalypse. I've known from the age of five, I'm going to live through the zombie apocalypse and I'm going to survive. This is what I love about mm-hmm, the students, mm-hmm. right? Is that they have that. There's just this zest, this cheerful zest about it, which lifts my spirits, right? right? When I start to get mm-hmm. down um, about things. Yeah, mm-hmm. well. Me and my zombie apocalypse team, because there is a team of us and all of us have a role that we are going to play together when that does happen. Very smart, yes. Um, we actually, yeah, but actually we're in a way, we kind of want the apocalypse to happen because we think that a lot of people don't need to be around and it would be nice to see a post-apocalyptic world maybe, which I guess is pretty dark. I think you've just described one of the major um, impulses that people have for mm-hmm. the apocalypse is that mm-hmm. it's a cleansing, right? Which allows you then mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. restructure. That's why the subtitle of the course is wrecking and rebuilding. So that, right. You know, exactly. Can, and then what was in there also like the cozy catastrophe? Yeah. I think I remember this term yes. from your class, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We all kind of, I like, I don't know. We we just imagine this cozy catastrophe where it's like all of us and our closest friends living in some commune yep. and sitting by the fire and talking oh, about the before sure. times and yeah. Right. And yeah. It's, it's cozy and we're all happy. And mm-hmm. we certainly don't think about all of the modern conveniences that we've lost. Like, I don't know, the internet. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Or antibiotics. Like, right. Video games. <laughs> yes. Yes. All of those 
things. <laughs> That's a good point. Who needs a video game at that point, though? Yeah. I think well, people- I mean, this is why, though, every um, apocalypse team has to have a botanist because I feel like botanists are are pretty crucial to survive in the apocalypse. They're key. Really. Yeah. You need a medic, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. A medic, yes. Why you're trying mm-hmm. to recruit Dr. T to your team? Yeah, like, <laughs> I did not. Like, did yeah. I not explain that I'm basically store. useless? <laughs> you don't want me on your team. <laughs> no, but you can be like our knowledge person. You know, mm-hmm. like I feel like every team has to have someone that can like be the storyteller, and I feel like you'd be really good at that. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we'd say mm-hmm. I think you would want to get rid of me after a while when you're like, you know, she doesn't really <laughs> contribute much um, to the team, but she's got some jokes here and there. So. Yeah. I don't know. You told us you're pretty good at making dough now, so that would probably be pretty helpful. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Knowing good crumbs. I can make, yes, very good crumbs. Right. <laughs> Mary Berry has nothing on me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. Um, I don't know if anybody else has one last thing they want to slip in before we, we end. This is just going to make me miss our class. I definitely want to try to take your other one just because I really love the conversations that you have. I feel like I'm always really engaged. Well, you were really engaged and I very much appreciated that too. You had a great class. Yeah, take your class. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope this is making you really excited, Mia, for your next semester. It is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to have you aboard, Mia. All right, cool. (laughs) You won't be able to get rid of me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, y'all. Well, thanks. And uh, we'll, we'll hit you up with what's happening next week. Um, and that's it. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I can't recommend Dr. T's class enough, especially since we're currently in a pandemic and apocalyptic world. I know I'm excited for it. And hey, listeners, don't forget to follow the honors program on social media. Our Instagram is at ACC underscore honors program. You can also follow us on Twitter at ACC underscore honors. Next week, we'll be chatting with the HSO president and our fellow ambassador, Mars. Topics will also include talking about who the hell we are as individuals, what schools are going to, and how the first week of classes are going for the fall semester. We post episodes every other Friday, so stay tuned for our next one. Remember, Riverbats, take it easy for the start of your fall semester. We have some events planned for you to get involved with the honors program. You can find us at the Riverbat Bash on Tuesday, September 21st from 11 to 1, or on Wednesday, September 22nd from 5 to 7. We'll also have an informational panel, which will be student-led, where you can find out more about the honors program. Dates will be Friday, October 15th from 1 to 2.30 p.m., Tuesday, October 19th from 10.30 to noon, and Monday, October 25th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Happy World Distance Learning Day on August 31st. Happy Labor Day. Happy Birthday Beyonce and Happy National Black Cat Appreciation Day. And in the meantime, don't forget to stay nerdy, stay curious, and don't forget to get vaccinated, wear a mask, wash your hands, make everyone around you feel safe. See y'all next time.